Welcome everyone to the special panel for Finance Podcast Week called The Pros, Investing with the Professionals with Rick Ferry from Bogleheads on Investing, Peter Schiff of The Peter Schiff Show, and Justin Klein from Invest Talk. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions just like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive pre-released episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. You can replay any of the panels on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for the session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcast constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or financial instruments. And now we'll hand it off to our host of the live stream panel, Justin Klein of the Invest Talk podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Excited to be here. Excited to be on with uh, Rick and Peter and all of our uh, all of our guests that are joining us. Uh, I'll kind of start off with uh, myself. I am the uh, co-host of uh, Invest Talk. Uh, I'm also a registered investment advisor, and we manage uh, client assets. So, you know, I I'll be upfront and frank. I'm more of a value investing type of guy, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the. I think the the argument against uh, value investing versus, say, indexing, uh, Bogle versus Buffett, uh, talk about strategy and the current uh, financial landscape. There's a lot to unpack. We're in an interesting time right now where uh, value is starting to reemerge after about 14 years of being dormant and uh, underperforming the growth side of the market. And we're also in a different time when it comes to the government policy handing from the monetary side to the fiscal side and coming out of a pandemic, which we haven't seen for, you know, pretty much all of our lives. So it's a very interesting time. Uh, I'm excited to talk with, with all of you, including uh, Peter and Rick. And uh, first, I guess I'll, I'll hand it over to Peter. Uh, maybe introduce yourself a little bit about your background and uh, unpack what you see in today's, uh, today's market and strategies that you think are going to work going forward. Sure. Well, first of all, I agree with you that I think we're beginning to see the early stages of a long overdue shift from this chasing momentum, mindless kind of indexing and just buying what's gone up because you think other people will pay even higher prices and moving back to real portfolio analysis where you get into the business and, and look for actual value, try to buy a real company. Uh, at, at a good price, and you can measure that by their earnings and by their dividends. So I think we're, we're, we're definitely returning to that. But I think there's a, there's a much bigger um, issue here. And I think that while a lot of people have also been chasing momentum, they've also been over-investing in the U.S. So I think it's not just that growth is too expensive relative to value, but the U.S. is very expensive relative to the rest of the world. So I think the new investment theme is going to be international value and even emerging market value companies and good dividends, especially given the economic environment that we are in and headed to in the United States, which will be stagflation, which is something we can get into, but much worse than the stagflation we had in the 1970s, more like a combination of the Great Depression uh, and uh, a much higher rate of inflation. I call it an inflationary depression, which is where I think we're headed. And, and so I think it's really important that investors protect themselves from this inflation tax by investing heavily outside the United States and trying to get income streams in other currencies so that they have some way to offset what is going to be a very substantial increase in the cost of living in the United States. I mean, basically, the price of almost everything Americans buy is going to go way up. And that is really the tax that we're paying for all this government spending. But if you want to avoid it, 
you need to avoid dollars, which means you need to avoid the U.S. market. Makes makes sense. Well, uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit more here as the hour goes on. I think next we'll we'll kick it over to Rick. Uh, I know he is the host of, uh, I believe, the Boglehead podcast. Why don't you give everyone a little background on yourself, Rick? Well, thank you, Justin, and it's an honor to be on the same podcast with you and Peter. Uh, my name is Rick Ferry, and I'm the host of the Bogleheads on Investing podcast. And the Bogleheads are a group, it's a nonprofit group of investors helping investors based on John Bogle's beliefs. And John Bogle was the founder of the Vanguard group of mutual funds, and they have specialized and really created I should say, the indexing mindset, where if you just buy and hold a portfolio of a few low-cost index funds, both stock and bond, and U.S. and international combined, you're going to outperform 90% of all the professional investors out there. And uh, it has been this way for 50 years, and it will continue to be that way for the next 50 years. So if you are looking for a long-term investment strategy rather than a short-term play in one thing or another, you will put together a very short-term, I mean, excuse me, you will put together a very uh, defined uh, few good index funds in your portfolio. You buy them, hold them, rebalance once in a while, and you're going to beat 90% of the pros, maybe maybe 95% over your lifetime. The fees are very low. The taxes are very low. I've been an investment advisor for over 30 years. I started out in the brokerage industry back in the 1980s. That model didn't work. I went over to start my own RIA where I managed money. I brought it from zero in assets up to $1.5 billion, just using a very low fee asset management model. I only charge my clients one quarter of a percent per year to put their investments in low-cost index funds. I sold that port, uh, that uh, company uh, a few years ago, and now I'm charging a very low $925 fee to help individual investors do this on their own, do-it-yourself investors, to help them put together their own portfolios and forego the cost of advisors and forego the cost of high cost mutual funds. And so that's what I'm doing now. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, great introduction. And this is definitely two different schools uh, of thought. And just like anything uh, in the investment world, they all have their, their arguments, their pros and cons. And so hopefully we can dig into them a little bit more. Now, Rick, there's an old saying that the, in the market that the, the market is a short term is a voting mechanism. But in the long run, it is a weighing mechanism. And clearly, indexing is a systematic way to vote for a specific allocation without really any consideration for valuation of the underlying securities. Mm -hmm. So if indexing is now the permanent dominant way people invest, and I believe it was sometime uh, last year or the year before where uh, the amount of money in index funds exceeded, mutual funds exceeded the uh, amount that were in active mutual funds. But if, if this is the now dominant permanent way people invest, does that mean that the weighing component of the market is a relic of the past? There's only a small amount of equity in index funds. It's less than less than 20% of the markets are indexed across the whole globe, both in the stock and the bond market. So the idea that this is a dominant force is, I think it's overstated. Uh, what we do know is that indexing is a relatively new phenomenon. Active management has been around for a long, long time. And the reason why indexing was actually created was because of the failure of active management to meet the expectation of outperforming the markets time and time and time again. This is why indexing was created. The first fund was created back in 1976. And we've seen during that almost 50 year period of time, it has been outperforming during all market conditions, whether markets are going up, markets are going down. There's been a lot of naysayers out there saying, oh, this is it. You know, now indexing is going to be, you know, mindless indexing. 
and all of this. And yet, despite all of that, it still continues to outperform a vast number of people who are charging a lot more money to try to beat the market. So, no, I don't see it as a uh, you know, change in anything. Uh, well, well I, well, I don't think I'm thinking more of the actual function of the market, right? So if there's, and you would agree that when you're indexing, you're not thinking at all about the valuation. You're just, uh, you're not putting more money in uh, companies that it may be cheaper versus other companies uh, that may be more expensive. In fact, you could argue it's the, the opposite. The bigger the company is, the higher market cap. Uh, the S&P, for example, is market cap weighted. So more money is allocated to those expensive names. And as we've seen the rise of index funds, uh, that's kind of perpetuated that growth versus value outperformance. Uh, yeah. And so and so and so would you say would you say that the the weighing mechanism of the markets is no longer needed because indexing just does better and that's all you really need to do? Well, it is all you need to do. I mean, that that's a fact. I mean, that's not you know, it's, it's not it's not an opinion based on where the markets are today. I mean, it, it's a fact. People have to invest for their own long term future. And if all they did was put their money in a few low cost index funds and allocate it between stocks and bonds and allocate you know, to, to Peter's point and to your point, some in international and some in the US, it's all you did, you're gonna outperform a vast yeah. majority of active managers. And yeah, you know, but, so there's no, no valuation. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, certainly, you know, over the last 30 years, you know, where we've been in this long-term bull market in U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, the Fed has been able to perpetuate this bull market bubble with its monetary policy. And all the while, the U.S. economy has been hollowed out as we've you know, gone from the world's biggest creditor to the world's biggest debtor. And we've amassed massive amounts of debt, borrowing money to import products that we can't produce because our economy is fundamentally weak. We just had a worst merchandise trade deficit in U.S. history reported on Friday. So during that time period, if you had invested in the most expensive overpriced stocks that dominate the indexes, this type of environment and this type of monetary policy, yes, you ended up outperforming people that were you know, looking for better valuations in, in, in the market. And it is a self-perpetuating <laughs> spiral because as these expensive stocks do better, then more money leaves the value investors into the indexes to chase that uh, performance. And a lot of people in the value community, they throw in the towel and more and more money. And it's not just the value, the index funds, but the big stocks that dominate the indexes are the ones that everybody owns who's not indexing. So you have everybody who's piling into these stocks. And the other problem is a lot of these stocks don't really pay much in the way of dividends. So what I think is going to happen is when this big bubble pops, when we go from falling interest rates to rising interest rates, when we go from lower inflation to high inflation, and you have a lot of the baby boomers who are going to try to finally tap in uh, to their stock portfolios to try to you know, survive in a much, much higher you know, cost of living environment than the one they envisioned when they were planning their retirement or they started their retirement, you're going to have a lot of selling in these names because they can't live off the dividends because the stocks don't pay dividends. So the only way to access your stock portfolio is to liquidate your principal. You can't just spend your dividends. So I think this whole dynamic is going to turn around. And I think that what's worse work for the last 30, 40 years is not going to work uh, for the next. I think it's going to be a very different environment. And people always get this confirmational bias and they think about what's worked recently. And I remember that, you know, when I was shorting the subprime market, uh, you know, 2006 timeframe, I had a hedge fund to short subprime. And when I was trying to convince people that the housing market was going to collapse and that the way to profit from it was to be shorting these subprime mortgages. And I explained the whole way these things were structured. The biggest objection that people would have to me as to why they didn't want to participate in this was that my thesis was that real estate prices were going to fall and a lot of that was going to precipitate the, 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 the defaults uh, on, on these bonds. And they said, but Peter, real estate prices have never fallen. You know, you can go his, you know, nationwide. We've never seen this before. So, you know, why should I think it's going to happen in the future when it hasn't happened in the past? 
And I tried to explain why the situation was very different recently and why you can't simply look at the past and just assume that what happened before is always going to happen in the future. I think you'd be making the same mistake now if you assume that, well, indexing has worked well over the last 30 years, that it's going to work well over the next. I don't think so. I mean, I think people are going to get burned in this strategy. I think you're going to have a lot of people trying to get out. The market's going to implode because there's no real value in these stocks. Before the well, value investors come in, these stocks are going to have to fall precipitously from their current levels. And when you combine that with the U.S. dollar crisis, which I think is going to send the dollar down, I mean, the losses that people have in the stock market, that's not going to be nearly as bad as the losses they have in, a, in, in overall purchasing power. Because if the dollar is falling, even if your stocks could, are rising a bit, but they may be falling in real terms because they're not even keeping pace with inflation, which is why the portfolios that I'm managing now and the mutual funds that I'm managing are trying to get everybody not only out of an overpriced U.S. stock market that is overpriced in large part because of indexing and because of the Fed, but to get out of an overvalued U.S. dollar to avoid this inflation tax, which is now the main way the U.S. government is planning on financing its expenditures. And, and, and that's a, a break from the past. It used to be tax and spend. Now it's print and spend. So they inflate, they create money out of thin air and just send it out to people. So that's a huge tax on savers, people that have U.S. dollar denominated investment portfolios. And I think that's a tax that you want to try your best to avoid. Thank you, Peter. Now, speaking of, you talked a little bit about market structure there, and I think that's what uh, I want to turn to next. And this is somebody, This I don't know if either of you have uh, heard from somebody named Mike Green. He's uh, he's spoken, he, he's, he speaks on a Real Vision and a lot of other uh, great platforms. And he speaks on the structural issues that indexing has created. In fact, JP Morgan actually has quantified that 90% of pre- uh, GFC, you know, global financial crisis from 08, well, pre-08 was focused on value. That was where the trading and equities was was uh, was primarily focused on uh, and, and allocated based on valuation. Today, 90% is ETF and mutual fund driven by indexing. And so what that's caused in, in, in talking, talking to you, Peter, we was saying over the last 40 years, what's worked? Well, in fact, there have been many periods where value has outperformed. The, the most recent would be from 2000 to 2007. Uh, and that was a time, you know, the, the late 90s was the start of the indexing craze. And as soon as the, the first tech bubble popped, then you had money flowing out of those indexes, out of those more expensive names. And that's when you saw the value rotation kind of take over. But around 07 is when that dominance of indexing kind of reasserted itself and growth continued to outperform. So maybe, maybe Rick, you can speak to uh, that, that, that shift here where um, the, while, while lower interest rates certainly help growth stocks, the main driver, uh, according to Mike Green, of the outperformance of growth over value has been the rise of index funds and the the machinations of how those work and how money, more money is allocated to the bigger names. And so that kind of links with what I was saying before about does that break the market function of, hey, buy over undervalued companies, sell overvalued, uh, overvalued companies and have that weighing mechanism. And is there a potential unwind that, that maybe uh, Peter is talking about that maybe everyone's kind of crowded into the same trade similar to the nifty 50 of the 1960s. And uh, back then it was all just by these 50 names, the, the Xeroxes and IBMs of the world back then and GM. Uh, and there was a huge unwind in the early 70s as everyone was crowded into that trade and you hit a bear market uh, once uh, you had a big recession there. So maybe speak to that a bit, uh, Rick. And, and, and do you think that's an issue or do you think uh, investors should just uh, ignore it and only think about hey, I want outperformance and all the other structural issues are, are for someone else to figure out. Well, let me start out with what do you want? What do you mean by outperformance? If you're trying to outperform all of the soothsayers out there who believe they have the answer, who are charging money for active management, if you, if you want to outperform them, then just do indexing because you'll outperform. 90% probability you'll outperform. So, you know, if you're trying to get, if you're trying to 
reach your financial goals. You want to take the most risks you can out of the equation. And one of the biggest risks is picking the wrong guru to follow because you could be very wrong for a very long period of time. And of course, you're going to give up right at the bottom, probably about that time that that particular guru starts to outperform. So my point is that you could just avoid all of this, all of this. The idea that people putting money into a total U.S. stock market index fund has caused only large cap growth stocks to outperform is nonsense. It's nonsense. The money goes into the market, goes into the entire stock market. You buy growth stocks, you buy value stocks. When you put money in an index fund, it is a neutral trade. Yes, money goes into the market. Therefore, the valuation of the entire market would may go up. Yeah, but, but you got to you remember that the indexes are weighted. So it's not like the same amount it's of money. It's the goes same into all net stuff. percentage that goes into each stock. It makes no, no difference. No, that's that's not true. If you go into the S&P 500 index, you're not more, doing the S&P 500. Dollar, you're doing every... a total stock market index fund and a total international index fund. You own every stock. In, in the percentage of the weight that it currently is, the same amount of money percentage-wise goes into every stock. This idea that it only goes into growth stocks and somehow it's driving but up the all S&P, the growth stocks, it's just each nonsense. Stock is in, each stock is in one five-hundredth of the S&P. It's each the stock, same dollar can... amount of money that goes into every percentage-wise no, every stock. If I put... If I put five hundred dollars, no, you're wrong. You are wrong about that. So the you're math. saying if I put five hundred dollars into an S and P index fund, they put one dollar into each of those five hundred stocks. That's not what I'm saying. It's percentage wise. That dollar that you put in goes percentage wise into each of the stocks. So the entire market goes yes. up by that amount. Right, but yes. it's not even the stocks that are already stuff. big. Rick, Rick, I'm looking. I'm looking right big? now. Rick, I'm looking at right now, VTI, the top 10 holdings. It is not equally weighted. The top holding is Apple. Well, I never the said they company. were equally the weighted. Second... You're mixing up my words now. Don't well, say that. But I did not no, no. say so, they were equally so, weighted. Rick, listen, listen. If you put a dollar into an index fund, yes, there are some equally weighted index funds. For the vast majority are market I, I, cap I'm weighted. So listen, let weighted. me finish. Let me finish. For every dollar that you put into a VTI, which you just talked about, Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, Four, call it five cents, is going to Apple. Four and a half cents is going to Microsoft. Three point three cents is going to Amazon. And those, and and naturally, more money are flowing into those bigger names for every dollar that goes into an index fund. And that's what we're speaking to. And that's the structural issue. But it is issues not that, causing these stocks to become a greater percentage that is, of the market. It is absolutely not, not true. That's absolutely, that's, if you it look is at the not structure of the, the market. It can't possibly be causing the stocks to become a greater percentage it, of the market. Because if, the if, equal amount percentage-wise are going into each of the 3,600 stocks. So therefore, no, every stock is getting their percentage. If a money yes, is going they're into getting a their percentage, but but Apple's getting five cents out of every dollar. It doesn't whereas cause smaller growth smaller names are getting literally. Stocks. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. If you no, look at the structure of the index, you're just looking index. at the math wrong. It now, can't possibly now, be that. Now, 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 you can argue. Now, you might argue. The best argument, I would say. I know you want that, it to be wrong because you're value managers, but the fact no. is indexing that goes into a total market fund, the same percentage dollar based on market cap goes into the value stocks as it goes into the growth stocks. Everything goes up together. A rising tide floats all boats. Everything goes up. And then when money comes out of the market, everything goes down because you're using a total market index funds. This idea that somehow putting money right. into the market only <clears throat> increases the value of growth stocks. It's just yeah. wrong. Well, let me let me make a, a more important point, though, you know, about the time period that you referenced from 2000 to 2007. And what's really significant about that time period is that is the time period between bubbles. Right. So the Federal Reserve inflated the Nasdaq bubble, the dot com bubble. And then when that bubble popped between the popping of the next bubble, which was the housing bubble, which was inflated by the Fed with the same same policy, not only did you see the value outperform, but the U.S. stock market lagged the world dramatically. I mean, foreign markets outperformed maybe 400%. And you also have to look at what was happening to commodities. 
oil prices went from $30 a barrel to almost 150. Gold went from 300 to 1,000. Um, you know, we saw the dollar index get cut in half as foreign currencies doubled. So during that period of time, it was a huge shift out of U.S. assets into commodities, emerging markets, things like that. Then when we had the financial crisis in 08, that reset everything again. We had, you know, all the QE and that helped refuel this bubble in indexing and, you know, all the, the tech stocks and the growth stocks. No, but bubble think, in indexing. I, I'm sorry. I, I fail to understand what you even mean by a bubble in indexing. It, it, it's means, illogical. No, it's yeah, not illogical. Bubble in indexing. It's, it's, it's more and more people adopting the attitude that you're espousing here. And it that is, all you have to great, do is buy the market regardless of the valuation of the market, that the PEs mean nothing, the dividend yield means nothing. You just buy the market regardless of how expensive it is, and you're going to make money. I just you're don't gonna think so. You're going to outperform the active managers. That's the no, point. No, no, you're not. You're not going to outperform an active manager that but knows the, what the he's doing. But the data shows you Peter, outperform. Yeah. But, it shows but Peter, it. It is Peter, proven academic fact that this hey, is what Peter, happens. Yeah. Peter, Rick has a good point. <laughs> Though you and I, we, uh, we, we, we look at the markets and we study uh, trends, both uh, near term, long term. We look at valuation, et cetera. And uh, we're, we, we have experience in doing that. The average person, frankly, they don't, right? They're, they might be an engineer. Uh, they might work for a big <laughs> manufacturing firm. Uh, they, they, they might do a lot of different things. They might work in marketing. Who knows? They're not equipped to do this. So, oh yeah, if your point, I think Rick's, I think Rick's yeah. point is, and and I think it makes sense because frankly, I've been wrong. Peter, you've been wrong. We've all been wrong. And so, what he, Rick's saying is, the risk to the average investor is to pick the wrong person to listen well, to I because get, they're brought equipped, right? Yeah, to, look, to make the make the smart decisions look, that we're able to over yeah, the long term. Yeah, let me get to your point on that because I I think first of all. The average person, if you just index right now, you're going to get killed. That's what I think. Now, you might get killed even worse if you try to pick your own stocks and you do a horrible job and then you have bad market timing and you're, you're allowing your emotions to get the better of you. So it's possible that certain people would be better off indexing than trying to do it themselves. But I think if you're going to hire somebody to do it for you, if you can pick somebody that has experience has portfolio managers that are. Oh, hello. Did I miss? Did I lose people? I think I think Peter dropped. Oh, OK. I think I think Peter dropped off. It, uh, which, 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 you know, okay, I mean, I think that there, we go. there is something better than just blindly buying the stock market at every point in time, regardless of the valuation or what's happening in the economy. I think if you actually think and analyze the macroeconomics and look at a bottoms up approach on the individual stocks, that instead of investing in stock markets, you invest in stocks. You invest in companies that are good values, that are well managed, that have good balance sheets, that have good growth potential, that have good dividends now and buy them. I don't worry about, you know, some short term index and how you may perform relative to that. It's looking for absolute total return long term and and also taking into consideration these global macro events. And I think mm -hmm. if you do that, if you hire somebody to do that, you're going to do much better off than just doing it yourself or giving up and just indexing because you're saying, I don't know which stocks are better values. I can't tell an overpriced stock from an underpriced stock. So I'm just going to buy all the stocks. So I'll get some of the good ones and I'll get some of the bad ones. And I think it'll just average out. I think that you can analyze the situation and not buy the ones that are really expensive. And I understand that sometimes really expensive stocks can get even more expensive before they crash. But since you don't know when that point is, the best thing to do is not own them until after they crash. And then if they become a good investment value, when other people are just getting rid of them because they can't take the losses anymore, you can step up and take advantage of the opportunity to buy a stock that used to be expensive when it's cheap. Now, that, now, that, now. that all sounds great. And, and yes, this is what people have been trying to do for literally a hundred years. I mean, trying to pick the advisors who they think may do it for them in the future. The problem is 
we don't know which advisors are going to do it for us. And I'll agree with you, Peter. Uh, I'll, I'll agree with you that there are going to be some, a minority, some advisors, some portfolio managers who actually do outperform. Now, that could be because of luck or it could be because of skill. Academically, it shows that a lot of it's luck, and there, but there is some skill out there. There is some skill. Now, here you have another dilemma. Instead of going out for the individual and picking stocks, the individual has to go out and pick the manager that they think has the skill. And, and a lot of times you're wrong. If all people did was have a diversified portfolio of a few index funds, and I'm not just talking about the S&P 500. In fact, I'm not talking about the S&P 500 at all, at all. I'm talking about the total U.S. stock market, the total international stock market, which includes emerging markets, and a couple of bond funds. And they don't even need to be bond funds. They could be a CD ladder of some sort. But my point is that by having this simple, low-cost, globally diversified index fund portfolio, you will outperform 90% of all the professionals who are trying to do what you just described, Peter. And you might be the one. I don't know. You might be the person who is in that top 10%. I don't know. But most people, including professionals, would be better off, meaning you know, endowments, foundations, uh, college pension funds, uh, college funds, excuse me, pension funds. A majority of institutional investors would be better off if all they had was a few good index funds in their portfolio rather than trying to now, pick, pick the winners. Now, Rick, if you're talking about straight performance, wouldn't you, and if you look at performance of different areas of the market, and you're talking about the total stock market index, which includes large cap, mid cap, small cap. But if you value want just growth, pure right? value growth, if you just want pure performance, wouldn't you start to allocate more money down the market cap ladder into mid and especially small cap? Because longer term, small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks. So with that argument, you would just simply be allocating to small cap stocks. And mm -hmm. in fact, indexing, when you get go down the market cap ladder into mid and small, doesn't work nearly as well. And if you actually go to it, 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 small caps uh, in, in foreign, foreign markets, you would actually say active does work better because uh, they're less uh, covered. Okay. I, I, I understand where you're going with this. And, and, and the so, fact is, yes, there are periods of time when various segments of the market, always, always but, periods of time, but long segments term, of the market, the active managers better. outperform. But, but, but to your point about to your point about factor investing, which is what you're talking about, yes. factor investing, we're going to go down to the smaller cap stocks and we're going to use the academic data, which says that in the very long term, small cap stocks have more risk than high cap stock, uh, large cap yes. stocks. Therefore, yes. theoretically, small cap stocks should outperform large cap stocks over the longer term because you're taking more risk. Oh, granted, that's that's what the academic says. And I'm not going to yeah. disagree with that. Same thing you know, with value all of this, versus growth. Remember, all of this only works because of where we're looking backwards. You know, if we if we were having this discussion in 1980, right, kind of the bottom of the last major bear market that peaked in 1966, you already mentioned the Nifty 50, you know, the Polaroids and the Xeroxes and all those one decision stocks. If somebody was looking backwards and they had just bought all the expensive names and, you know, from 1966 to 1980, uh, the Dow was down. I mean, in, in real terms, maybe 90 percent. I forget because it, gold was at thirty five dollars an ounce in 1966 and it was at eight hundred dollars an ounce in 1980. Uh, so, you know, the real purchasing power of the Dow got destroyed during that that bear market that went through the inflationary period of the 1970s. So I think what we're going to go through is going to be much worse than what we went through in the 1970s. And mm -hmm. so when you look back at this decade, it's not gonna be a decade where, wow, all I had to do is hold these stocks that did well in the 90s and the 2000s. I think this is gonna be a disaster. I think these stocks are gonna get killed even more so than they got killed in the 1970s, adjusted for inflation. I don't think you could just invest in a vacuum. And the fact that so many people did so well during indexing, I get that. But you have to understand that's an aberration and why they did so well and what were the monetary factors that enable that to happen 
But really what that did is inflate a bubble of epic proportions that is going to pop and people are going to get wiped out in these portfolios. Cannot and, disagree and, and, and with you people, more. People I should not be. Disagree people with you should more. not be indexing. People, people, people should invest in good quality investment opportunities. They should not close their eyes and just buy the market and just assume they're going to make money because that's well, not true. You just we're, not guaranteed right now, to make money buying the market. You could lose. This a lot has of been money the argument the for for a hundred years. This is why indexing started to begin with. This is why people began to look at indexing to begin with. Uh, you know, uh, th these studies go way back looking at why haven't active managers who have had all of these great ideas, why haven't they been able to outperform year over year, well, obviously, over decade? Obviously, some of them are because otherwise nobody would send the money. I mean, you've got a lot of these hedge funds that charge two and 20 and yet people are sending the money. They obviously think there's outperformance there. Well, they, they, that's, yeah, the they hope. that's the hope. That's well, the hope. Yes. Of well, course. I think I, I, I think the uh, I'll get to kind of my arguments uh, that value that that argument of that active management just never works to me is oh, no, flawed. If you're looking at the math, no, please, let, please, let, please, let, please, let, please. Let me I did let not me say active Rick, management never Rick, works. Let I did finish. not let, say let me that. finish. Okay. Rick, let me finish. So VTI, <laughs> right? The total stock market index. Okay, you're looking at the total, total market. Now, if you take all active managers, well, what are active managers investing in? If you take them in aggregate, they're investing in the total stock market. If you take them in total, and they're charging yeah. more fees than the Agreed. average uh, index fund, right? Agreed. So you, Agreed. you take them as a total and you take them with a higher fee level than say a VTI, they're naturally going to out underperform. So, 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 so that's clear. And like you said, a subset do do better. Now, what I really want to, really want to talk about is we're, we're looking at equities, okay? But the equities are not the only thing that people can invest in. And right. frankly, uh, I know I work with a lot of retirees. Uh, I'm not sure how many retirees you work with, Rick, but what do you, what do you recommend for retirees who are more focused to, uh, on using their money for income purposes as opposed to this long-term outperformance? You know, in 2007 to 2009, VTI went down 55%. Well, if you're a retiree, you can't handle that level of volatility, correct? So, well, do I don't you, know if what you do can you or not. It depends on the retiree. True. That's very true. Uh, but but if you're focused more on income and the stability of that of that money, right? What do you recommend for clients who are more focused on income and, you know, uh bonds indexes clearly actually underperform actively managed bonds. Well, that's not true either, but you can go down that road if you want to, and we can have a disagreement about that if you like. Well, it's definitely true. If you, I mean, No, it's if, not if true. Not if you look back at the long-term data. There are always periods of time at which one asset class, the active managers are outperforming. It happens to be fixed income right now because treasury bonds, as what Peter yes. talked about, you know, the Fed is involved in keeping interest rates artificially low, therefore mm -hmm. buying up all the treasuries that Treasury can mm -hmm. issue. And, uh, and, and the government's keeping... issuing a lot of them. Right. But the problem with the aggregate bond market index fund is mm -hmm. it's a lot of Treasury. So your mm -hmm. exactly. active managers tend to have more corporate. So they have outperformed. Yep. Yes, I, I agree with you. That has happened. But there is always going to be one section of the market, bonds international, small cap, large cap, whatever. There'll always be these pockets of the market where for a while active managers are outperforming. And right now that sector had been, had been. Again, I never say are outperforming or will be outperforming or because it, that's a future tense type view. They have outperformed recently. And and not recently, I mean, for a while, for as long as the Fed has been keeping interest rates low. So granted, but I don't know what the future is going to be. I don't know if that's going to be the section of the market where uh, active managers are going to outperform going forward or not. It might be. It might continue but, to be well, that but, way. But, but yeah, but let, me, let me mention something about, about what I'm advising, because you, you bring up a good point about the bond market, because if you are a retiree and you're looking for income, the problem is what you would traditionally buy, bonds, are so overpriced thanks to the Fed's manipulation, that you really can't get enough of a yield, especially when you factor in inflation, to have any real income. So whereas you would traditionally be risk adverse and you'd look at the bond market, thanks to the Fed and you know the government too, you can't really go to the bond market. So what I have my clients do who need income 
is I look to international equities that pay very good dividends. I mean, there's a lot mm -hmm. of stocks out there that you can find that have five, six, seven, eight, nine percent dividend yields. You can build good portfolios of companies that are attractively valued so that even if their prices go down, it's kind of immaterial to your income stream. The, the dividends are going to continue regardless of the short term movements in the market that might affect the price of your stocks. The earnings and their ability to play dividends will be there. And so that's what we're doing is getting more income oriented investors to uh, defensive, conservative, value-oriented stocks where they're buying these stocks at fair prices, you know, that you can look at historic metrics on companies that have been around 50, 100 years that aren't, aren't going anywhere. But more importantly, the, what I, the point I'm trying to get my clients to understand is that inflation is going to be so important that it's purchasing power that you really have to be concerned with, not just getting a dividend, but you have to make sure that you can buy the things that you need with the dividend check when it arrives. Mm -hmm. And and so that's where I think the international component comes in, because as the U.S. dollar falls relative to other currencies of creditor nations, countries that have trade surpluses and that are not in the, the type of fiscal hole that, that we've dug ourselves and mm -hmm. that are going to see appreciating currencies relative to the dollar, you can invest over there. And so not yeah. only do you have income, but you have income that's likely to go up along with the cost of living in the United States so that when you get your dividends, you can actually afford the food and energy and all the various expenses that you have. Because I think a lot of American retirees are going to be in a situation where their income is insufficient uh, to Peter, afford those things. And Peter, so then they're really going to have to dig into their principal. Peter, I want to go to uh, uh, I, I agree with, I who agree asked with, a question. I, I, I agree with I, Peter, by I, the way, I, this, on that. This, this, this is uh, kind of directed towards uh, you, you a bit, Rick, which is, uh, Joanna asks, can we have a mix of both index and single valuable, valuable stocks? So it, it, if you are investing in individual companies, you're talking about lowering fees. Well, there's no lower fee than actually owning an, uh, a company directly. So what do you think about that? Having maybe the bulk of your portfolio invested in uh, index funds. But as you see opportunities, you see companies uh, that are undervalued, that have good, strong, long-term track records, you see those uh, present themselves. What do you think about picking up those names and trading around? And if you need some capital, you sell your, some of your index fund and you allocate towards those undervalued names that you find in the market. Yeah, so I, I call that bingo money. Right. And, and okay. the reason I call it bingo money is because my grandmother, uh, rest her soul, when she used to wash my grandfather's uh, pants, she used to find all this change in there and she put it in a uh, glass jar. And then she went to the church uh, every Wednesday night and she played bingo with it. So it's bingo money. Um, so that glass jar is your bingo money. Basically, you have an account. And I, by the way, I think that if you're going to do this, you should do it in a Roth account so that mm -hmm. if you actually do have a. Uh, an out-of-body experience and buy Tesla at, uh, uh, you know, last year and it goes up by 10 times and you actually make a lot of money that you could then sell it in your Roth account and not have to pay a capital gain tax on it. That's why I, I agree with that. If, if you have bingo money account and you want to, you know, do, do what you suggested where you believe that you might be able to pick, quote unquote, underperforming uh, stocks that, uh, Fine. I mean, if this is what you like to do, this is what you enjoy doing, then then I think you should do it. I don't think you should do it with your serious money. And that was the name of my first book, by the way, Serious Money. Your serious money should be just in a portfolio of a few broadly diversified stock and bond index funds, both U.S. and international. But if you want to have a bingo money account, maybe up to 10 percent of the value of your of your portfolio total, that that's fine. Yeah. But again, when you're saying that, you're basically implying that when you do your homework and try to analyze companies for value. And you can screen the, you know, the, your world of stocks by all sorts of metrics and narrow it down to stocks that meet certain criteria that you want to then look at. But to consider that gambling, that's like playing bingo, but then just buying an index, regardless of price or market conditions, and say that that's somehow playing it safe, that you're not gambling to just buy a historically expensive market, you know, especially in the U.S. right now, not only is our market more expensive than it ever was at prior peaks like 1929 or 1966 or 2000, not, not only is it more expensive than it was then, 
But the U.S. economy is in far worse shape now than it was then. We have so many more risks to the economy. And U.S. corporations are actually facing massive tax increases and increased regulation, which is going to compound their problems. I mean, you're buying into a company and now its taxes are going to get raised. There's going to be more regulation. And now you're going to have politicians in Washington trying to get into the boardroom and say, hey, you don't have enough women. You don't have enough uh, African-Americans. You don't have enough transgender. Oh, by the way, you need to start hiring people based on their ethnicity and their race. Stop trying to consider who the best person is for the job. We're going to force you to run your corporation as if it's a social project. And you have to consider stakeholders now. It's not just the shareholders. You're there to serve society and to serve the public and to be diverse. And you can't just exploit your workers. You need to pay them and, and all this kind of stuff. When you have a bunch of socialists who are now in control and you have the mindset of the of the voter, yeah, we want more socialism and more free stuff. And the, the corporations are basically seen as, oh, we're gonna we're gonna loot these corporations and, and take their money and we're gonna tell them how uh, to run their businesses. I don't know. This is a very dangerous time to be buying into the US market. I mean, there's so many better places around the world that I'd rather invest. And there's so many companies that actually represent good investment value. I'm not no, no. buying a, an expensive market and hoping it keeps going up. I'm buying no. a, a stock that, that, that is undervalued. I don't have to hope for anything. I'm getting a good dividend right now, even if the stock never goes up. My return is my dividend. When you're buying these overpriced stocks, the only way you make money is if the price goes up. But the only way the price goes up is if somebody else buys it. But what do people want out? If you own good dividend-paying stocks, it doesn't matter what the price of the stock is. Nobody has to buy that stock. You're going to make money by collecting your dividend. Now, Peter, you're yeah. a big believer in gold over Bitcoin, value over, say, growth investing. Now, how do you square that with the massive innovations that are being made today in the tech space and, and creating clear value for us as society? The top three holdings of the Vanguard Total Market Index is our Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon. Obviously, Apple with the iPhone, Microsoft with the, their suite of uh, Office uh, and business software, Amazon with Prime and all the things that uh, yeah. it gives us two-day shipping, etc. How do you square yeah. the clear value? That, that Those companies are not nothing. They have provided clear value for consumers, for yeah. uh, fellow businesses. Let me <laughs> and, and, and how do you square that in, in, in an environment where, uh, you know, yes, some of them might be overvalued, you could argue, uh, but clearly they still have invest, they're, they're still investable. They're still great companies. Well, a great company and a great stock, you know, are, are two different things. I mean, you can, I mean, one of the reasons that some of these stocks are so expensive is because they are great companies. The problem is sometimes you can overpay for a great company. That, in fact, it's great companies where you're more likely to overpay. You know, it's the you know, it's the it's the it's the companies that aren't as great that people aren't willing to you know just really pay up for. But, you know, you know, it's not valuable at any price. At some point, yes, it's a great company. Be a customer, but don't be a, a, a shareholder. But I want to go back to your point that you made about gold and Bitcoin, because this really uh, epitomizes what I'm talking about. It is the ultimate value versus momentum or growth. Growth. Gold is value. Right. When you own gold as a store of value. You own the world's most useful metal. You own a metal that has all sorts of applications that is a store of value. The reason it's a store of value is because if you don't use the gold today, if I have a gold coin that I'm holding in my safe, I'm not making jewelry out of it. I'm not using it in a, in a chip to conduct electricity. I'm not putting it into aerospace or dentistry. I'm saving it so that somebody else can do those things in the future. So gold is an actual commodity. It has real intrinsic value. And if there's going to be a lot of inflation and the price of copper is going to go up and the price of wheat's going to go up and the price of oil is going to go up, price of gold is going to go up too. And therefore, you'll still be able to buy your wheat and your oil and your copper with your gold, right? If you just hold on to paper, you may not be able to buy much of anything. On the other hand, Bitcoin is like the growth form of that. It's like, hey, buy Bitcoin. It has no actual intrinsic value of its own. You can't make anything out of it. You can't make jewelry out of it. You can't conduct electricity with it. You can't do a thing with it. All you can do is hold it and sell it to somebody else, assuming that other person is willing to buy it because he thinks he could sell it to some other fool at an even bigger price. So this whole idea that Bitcoin is digital gold, that basically is your momentum. 
hey, we're buying this because it has momentum. And you know what? Had you bought Bitcoin 10 years ago, well, you have much more money now than if you bought gold. Therefore, if you buy Bitcoin today, well, in 10 years, you're still going to have more money, right? You're looking in the rearview mirror and you're just assuming that because Bitcoin has done so well over the last 10 years, that the next 10 years are going to be exactly the same. I think that this is a bubble, Bitcoin is a mania, and that the thing is going to crash. And I don't care how much profits people think they have now on Bitcoin they haven't sold. Uh, at the end of the day, the bottom's going to drop out of it. And the people who have been buying value, who have been buying real gold instead of fool's gold, they're going to have the money in the end. And it's the same thing on a broader scale with the markets, except Bitcoin highlights it to its complete absurdity, where you're actually taking something that has no value whatsoever. And claiming that it has that it's that it's that it's gold when it has when it has absolutely nothing in common with an actual uh, commodity, uh, but you know as long as people are dumb enough to buy it, it'll keep going up, and it works until it doesn't. And it's may the same I, thing may with I? indexing. Oh, may sorry. This is this. Sorry, this is Norma Jean from the Podbean team. I'm so sorry. We're we're just out of time. So I just wanted to thank you all so much. We're going to do a giveaway right now. Um, this session has just been absolutely riveting. Thank you so much to everyone. So we're going to give away a copy of Peter's book, Autographed, and a one-year premium newsletter subscription from Justin. So the next two people to comment emojis, please jump in and we'll, we'll allocate those giveaways. Yep, so we've got Drew Ship, and then the next emoji will get Justin's one-year premium newsletter subscription. Joanna, perfect. All right, so we're going to put our email here. My email is normajeanb at podbean.com. And so for everyone who has won today, please email us there and I'll just pop it here in the chat. Perfect, our moderator has just popped it in there. Thank you everyone today for joining us. Our special live stream panel, The Pros, Investing with the Professionals with Rick Ferry from Bogleheads on Investing, Peter Schiff of The Peter Schiff Show and Justin Klein from Invest Talk. If you joined late or you want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this panel on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetization platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Thank you again so much to Rick, Justin, and Peter. Thank you for joining us. Our next live stream will begin in two minutes. <laughs> and that's our Money Mindset panel with Jeremy Newsom from Broke to Woke, Christina Weiss. We've got Patrice Washington and Catherine Morgan as well. Patrice from Redefining Health and Catherine from In Her Financial Shoes. So join us in just a couple of minutes. Thank you again, Rick, Justin, and Peter. And well, thank, thank you, everyone, for joining thank you, us for Finance Podcast Week. Bye.